Hey guys, welcome to Crime, the rest is history. And before moving on to today's episode, I would suggest everybody to listen to the disclaimer. So guys, in my previous episode, I did state there's a few clues of who the Jack Ripper was or what it was about. So let's not waste any more time and move on. The Gulliston Street Graffito the Jews are the men. Jack the Ripper, only clue, having murdered Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes on the 30th of September 1888, the Whitechapel murderer fled eastwards from Military Square and headed into the East London, where a clue in a doorway in a Golston Street a short walk from Milter Square. Why he went east? He had now murdered twice in less than an hour and was no doubt well aware that the area would soon be steaming with police officers, each one of them intent on hunting down and catching him. Yet, he didn't head to the relative safety of the streets to the west, the south or the north of Military Square, but rather he went into the streets where much of the activity was directed to his capture. This would suggest that he was heading for the safety of his house or lodging and that he was therefore a local man living in the heart of the area. The strangest thing of all about the killer's escape from Military Square is that he appears to have slipped past several police officers without either being noticed or arousing any suspicion. Detectives already in the area we know, for example, that at the moment that Catherine Eddowes was leading her murder to be into Middle Square, three city detectives, Daniel Hales, Robert Ottram, and Edward Marriott, were busily outstretching plain clothes patrols along the city's eastern fringe. Yet, the murderer had apparently managed to slip past them undetected. As he added back into the East End having slaughtered Catherine Eddowes, Daniel Hales was over by St. Botolph's Church when he learned of the murderer at just before 2 a.m. Hurrying to Mitter Square, he gave instructions to the constables present to head off and search the neighborhood. He then set off to make his own search heading first for the Middlesex Street from which he turned into Wentzworth Street where he stopped to question two men he encountered both of whom gave him a satisfactory account of their movements and so he allowed them to continue on their way. When he passed through Golston Street at around 2.20 a.m., where having found nothing out of the ordinary, he doubled back and returned to Middle Square. 
On arrival, he discovered that the body had been taken to the mortuary in Golden Lane. So he made his way there, and on arrival, he was informed that a fragment of woman's apron had apparently been taken away by her griller. P.C. Long finds the apron. The missing segment of apron was found by P.C. Alfred Long as he patrolled his beat along Galston Street at 2.55 that morning. Walking past the doorway, which led to staircase of 108 and 119 Wentworth model dwellings, he noticed a portion of apron lying on the floor inside the doorway. On closer inspection, he discovered that it was covered with blood and feces and noticed other marks which suggested that the blade of a knife had been wiped on it. P.C. Long had in fact walked past the same door at 2.20 a.m. at more or less the same time that Daniel Hales has passed through the Golston Street and like Hales, he had seen nothing out of the ordinary. Indeed, he was emphatic that he would most certainly have noticed had the piece of paper of apron been there then, and he was therefore sure that it hadn't been. The apron's significance. The apron is the only real clue that Jack the Ripper left behind and it tells us much about the killer's intention and appearances as he fled the scene of his latest aggressive. But at the same time, it is also arises other questions that in some ways muddy the water even further. It is a clue in so much as it reveals to us the direction that the Riper took as he fled from Middle Square in the wake of murder of Catherine Eddowes. There can be no doubt that he was going to ground as he headed away from the murder scene, so the location of the bloodied fragment suggests that he was heading to a home or a bolt hole situated in East London of the apron also answers the question of his appearance as he fled from the scenes of his aristocracies. There is a common belief that he must have been drenched in blood while having carried out such a brutal and gruesome murderous. But this way probably not the case. Indeed, the apron tells us how much visible and incriminating blood he would have had upon his person. Would he have been blood-stained? Since the available evidence suggests that the riper actually fixed his victims before carrying out his repellent multiplication of murderers, theirs heart would have all but stopped beating by the time he cut their throats, and thus he would have avoided the atrial spirit that would have been resulted in him becoming heavily blood-stained when he cut the coated artery. It should also be remembered that his victims, being prostitutes, went with him into the dark corners of squares and passageways 
for the purpose of sexual intercourse. If he was wearing a large overcoat, they would have had no suspicion should he opt to unbutton or remove it. Indeed, they would doubtless have been more suspicious had he opted to keep it on. Having carried out the murder, he may have had blood on his shirt, jacket and trousers, but by putting the coat back on, he would have been able to cancel many of the blood stains. and there would have remained hidden until he got home and was able to clean himself at his leisure. The apron relieves just how much visible blood he did have upon his person for. As he made his way through the streets, he would undoubtedly have had blood on his hands and on the blade of his knife and would have been anxious to wipe this away as soon as possible. Had he stopped in the streets and wiped away the evidence, he may have been noticed. He required some cover to perform this task, and a recessed and a dark doorway such as the one in Goldstone Street would have been provided sufficient privacy for him to wipe his hands and the blade of his knife without attracting any attentions to his nefarious task. Once he was certain that he was clean enough, he would have dropped the apron and continued home. Where was the riper? But if apron solves the mystery of why the killer was able to escape without anyone noticing any blood stains, it throws up another puzzle in that its presence in that particular doorway suggests that he lingered in that immediate vicinity of his crime for so much longer than he actually needed to. The journey from Middle Square to Goldstone Street takes a little under 10 minutes at a brisk pace. Daniel Hayes had walked in it 20 or so minutes and he was locked. He was to look up for any suspicious looking characters and had even stopped to question the two men he had encountered and rode. There are admittedly several possible routes that he would have taken, but they all can be done at a rapid pace in around 10 minutes or less. If Long and Hayes were covered in their assistance, that the portion of apron hadn't been there at 2.20 a.m., then the murderer had loitered in the area for anywhere between 35 minutes and an hour, during which time the police were fancying out into the area of to search in and were stopping and questioning any man they met. So where was the killer while all this was happening? Was he hiding in one of the empty warehouses along the route? If so, why hadn't he dropped the apron there? Surely his survival instinct would have instantly kicked in after the crime, and his overwhelming desire would have been to get away from the danger of capture as quickly as possible. Is it possible that he had in fact gone home and then returned to the streets 
devoid of blood strains, to drop the apron into the doorway, possibly to taunt the police. The honest truth is that we will never know the answer to this puzzling question. The Gulletin Street Grafto is discovered. Long's first thought on discovering the portion of apron was that someone may have been attacked and could at that very moment be lying injured or dead on the staircase or landing inside the dwellings. So he stood up and intending to search the block and as he did so, he noticed a squat chalk message on the wall directly above the apron. It read, the Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Moments later, another officer arrived at the scene and Long asked him to guard the building, telling him to keep a careful watch on anybody entering or leaving it. Whistled, he took the portion of apron around the Commercial Street Police Station and handed over to an inspector. Soon, officers of the Metropolitan Police were gathering around the doorway and were gazing at the graffito with feelings of great trepidation. The police concerns, mindful of the strong feelings of an anti-Semitism that had been surfaced in the area in the wake of the leather apron scarf, and realizing that the Wentworth model dwellings not only stood in a large Jewish locality, but was also inhabited almost exclusively by Jews. The Metropolitan Police began to fear that if the message was left, it could lead to a resurgence of racial unrest in the district and the consequences could be dire. They were therefore anxious to erase the message and to do so sooner rather than later. This agreement between the two police forces, but both the portion of apron and the graffiti, pertained to a murder investigation being carried out by the city police detectives of which had soon crossed the boundary and were also gathering around the doorway. They were not so keen to erase but what they saw as an important clue in their investigation and the two forces clashed over what should be done about the graffito. The city police were adamant that it should be photographed. The Metropolitans pointed out that this would mean waiting until it was light, by which time a genital purchasers would be arriving in their thousands to purchase from the Jewish stallholds at the Petticoat Lane and the Galston Street Sunday markets. Since there was no way of keeping it hidden from these crowds, the Metropolitan Police were convinced that the result might be full-scale right against the Jews. Daniel Hale suggested a compromise whereby only a top line of the Jews are would be erased. Was he correct? In fairness to Sir Charles Warren, many of those who saw the graffito commented that it looked faded as though it had been there for some time. Also, it seems somewhat unlikely that having taken the trouble to clean his hands to obliterate incriminating bloodstains, the riper would have 
then risked lingering in the doorway long enough to chalk the message on the wall, knowing that at any moment a passing policeman would spot him. The probability is that the message was already there, possibly left over from an anti-Semitic unrest that had swept the area in the wake of leather apron scare and that it was a complete coincidence that the riper had chosen that the same doorway in which to clean himself up and leave behind his only clue. Given the events, a few weeks of precious Warren was probably justified in his belief that erasing the message would spar innocent Jews from becoming the targets of avenging genital mobs and he probably made the right judgment call based on the information immediately available to him. With hindsight, however, it is interesting to note that because of the controversy over Warren's action, the Golston Street Graffito was widely reported and yet the wide-scale anti-Semitism that Warren so feared did not break out again. Monday, 6th October, 1888 On the afternoon of Monday, 6th October, 1888, the body of Catherine Adose began its final journey from the mortuary in its golden lane, where it had been kept since her murder. To the city of London Cemetery where she was laid to rest. So guys, this is how Catherine Eddowes was laid to rest. So guys, until the next victim, stay tuned to crime, the rest is history. And this is your host, Lavnia Zeus. Adios!